Amen. All right, check it out. You ready for this, Mario? All right, here we go. He's considered to be one of the greatest evangelists of all time, who literally shook not one but two continents for God. And listen to how it started, man. This is cool. It started one, one uh, a Saturday when a person just happened to approach him while he was working at a shoe store. He sold shoes. And they, they're a Christian, so they go up to him. What do they do? You're supposed to witness, right? And they simply went up to this guy and says, hey, I want to tell you how much Jesus Christ loves you. Shortly after that, bang, he knelt right down, then and there in the shoe store and gave his heart to Jesus. And then later he told how he felt. He says, I mean, I was in a new world. The, the birds sang sweeter. The, the sun shone brighter. I, I'd never known such peace. In fact, he did the next logical thing. Hey, this is great. Other people should have it too. So the next thing you know, he started his own Sunday school in an abandoned freight car. And then it kept growing, so he moved to an old vacant saloon. And, and then the class became so large that the former mayor of Chicago gave him the hall over cities, the city's north market for his meetings rent-free. And shortly after that, he produced, listen, the largest Sunday school in Chicago, reaching some 1,500 kids every single week. One guy. But then he had an encounter with a dying Sunday school teacher who said that he was greatly concerned about the salvation of the girls that he taught in his class. So this dying teacher rented a carriage for himself and this man, and he went to every single girl's home, and he won every single one of them to Jesus Christ before he died. And this so moved this man so much that soul winning, hello, seemed to be the only important thing to do from then on. So he made a vow to tell at least one person every single day about Jesus Christ. And then later, another evangelist shared with him these words, the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by a man who is fully consecrated or set apart for God. And these words burned so much in this man's soul that, listen, when all was said and done, true story, this one Christian man led as many as one million people to Jesus Christ. Perhaps the world has seen what one man can do when you're totally set apart for God. The man's name, of course, was Dwight Moody. Interesting. Now, folks, I don't know about you, kind of, you know, one in a million people to Jesus, that's kind of a life worth living for. Can you at least get that one? Yeah, I think we can get that one, okay? And that is just amazing. I mean, he just worked at a shoe store, got saved, natural response, hey, tell people about Jesus. They got to know him. One million people join him in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Well, folks, once again, we know the theme. We've got a problem. Even though God's the same God and we're just as much his children as Dwight Moody is, hello, what's going on today in the American church? We read the Bible on one hand, we take a look at our lives in the other, and we're going, hey, there's a serious disconnect here, man. It's not computing. It's not matching up. How come these people like Dwight Moody get to have this amazing, awesome ministry and walk with Jesus Christ, and here I am fumbling around in the dark. I don't have this life worth living for. i got a life worth giving up. You ever been there as a Christian? And folks, once again, this is the great news, okay? That kind of life is available to every single Christian. Once again, do it. I know we've done it 15,322 times before. Who's counting? I am. But turn to somebody and say, hey, that means you, okay? <laughs> it's really true, folks. It's available to every one of us. And that's why we're going to continue our study, A Life Worth Living For. We're taking a look at the different keys that I believe are pivotal if we're going to have that amazing, fruitful walk with Jesus Christ. Yes, believe it or not, Christian, us here today in Vegas, just like Dwight Moody had. We saw the first six times is when you and I experience God's joy. Why? Because God's given us his joy, and it's not just for us. It's for you and I to be a joyful example in our joyless world. Okay, it's a powerful witness, okay? It's a gift from him. The next 16 times we saw the second key was experiencing God's peace. Read the scripture. God's clear. He's not only given us his joy, he's given us his peace. Why? It's a wonderful two-bang punch. We get to be joyful, peaceful Christians in a joyless, peaceless world. It's awesome. And people naturally, hey, how do you do that? You're going through hard times like me. You see what's going on in the world. How come you're so full of joy? How can, where, can, I, can I have that? and we get the privilege of leading them to Jesus. And it's all a gift from God, okay? Now, last time we started the third key, and that was experiencing God's worship, okay? Experiencing God's worship, and that is basically, in a nutshell, that is living a life, Christian. You and I are being thankful and grateful for what God has done. We are worshiping. We're thankful for what he's done. Praise God, I'm not going to hell. I'm a worshiper of Jesus, right? And, and the polar opposite we saw, though, is the antithesis of that, and that is some crybaby, whiny, complaining mouth. Not one that's thankful and grateful for what God's done, right? And the reason why we saw it's pretty obvious, okay? That's not a good advertisement for Jesus, but that's the game we play, isn't it? Right? We're out there, oh, hey, come to Jesus. He's great. Ever since I got saved, I'm so satisfied and life is awesome and it's great. And five minutes later, what are we doing? <laughs> the french fries are cold. I can't believe they did that. And you did what they said. 
Not a good witness for Jesus. Okay, not a good witness for Jesus. And so we took a look at the harmful effects of this life of complaining. You're supposed to worship God, but your mouth reveals who you're really worshiping. And if it's whining and complaining, it ain't God. You're not being thankful, you're not being grateful. And we saw the first harmful effect was, hello, it affects you. As we clearly saw last week with Kim, okay? As we saw there, if you keep this up, it's not only gonna shrivel your heart, okay? But if you don't shut it off, it's gonna spring forth bitterness. The Bible says that kind of a life will crush your spirit, it'll dry up your bones, and it will defile you and start to spill out to other people. Which leads us to the next point, okay? The second harmful effect of complaining is it affects other people. See, it's bad enough that it could dry you up, it could shrivel you up, it could mess you up, it could just mess you up totally. I mean, you're just, ah! But the problem is complaining, have you noticed this? It never stays with just one person. It's like a deadly infection, it's worse than chicken juice, okay? It just, blah, and then everything goes downhill from there. Now we're gonna take a look at two ways it does that. It infects other people, okay? And the first thing is it turns them into objects of blame. Objects of blame. How many guys realizing that blame is a sin? Well, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God. What was the next sin after the first sin with the fall of man? Let's take a look at that. Genesis chapter three. Open your Bibles there. Genesis chapter three. And if you find the preface, what do you do? Hang it right. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Let's take a look at the fall of man. Now, we all know this is when mankind got too close to the Grand Canyon, fell over. It's recorded for us right here. No, that's not what he means by the fall of man. This is when man fell away from you know, an intimate relationship with God because sin entered the world, separated us from God in that intimate relationship. That's what we gain back, amongst other things, when we receive Jesus as our Savior. Sin is atoned for, taken care of. Genesis chapter 3, this is how it happened. God created paradise. You would think, man, there's nothing to complain about. Man, they're worshiping God. It's all about God. But something happened and changed their worship. Self-centered, okay? And they need to protect it with their mouth. Let's take a look. Verse uh, uh, 1, chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Now, isn't that the problem? Isn't that what the enemy does every single time? We know what God's word says. We know all of his promises. How many times did we see this in our last section with God's peace, that he's good, he only does good, he works all things out together for good? God did say that. But how many times do we know what God's word says? And then all of a sudden, the thought goes to your head, Wait, but did he really mean that in this You know where that comes from? It ain't the Holy Spirit of God. It's doubt. It's the same thing that Satan did at the very beginning, at the fall of man. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, yeah, we may eat uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat uh, fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Now listen, he moves to stage two after he gets you out. You will not surely die. He calls God a liar. Isn't that the same thing? God's good, he's good, he's promised to do everything for good. Oh, did he really want it? And then we act like, no, God did lie. Excuse me? Where do you think that's coming from? Again, not the spirit of God. It's the same tactic. Did God really say? He says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the women, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for what? Food, that's about self, right? So, ooh, that's, ah, I like f- f- the food, right? And pleasing to the what? I, I like how that looks, right? It's also desirable for gaining wisdom for who? Oh, meat, I'll do, yeah, this is awesome. I, I can gain from this, right? Notice the problem that she was uh, happening there. And desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he said, absolutely not, I refuse to. I am the spiritual leader of this house. I put my foot down, we're following God. No, that's not how it happened. Adam just chomped right on it. Not, didn't seem to be much hesitation either, that's too bad. Then the eyes of both of them were open, they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he's walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord uh, God among the trees in the garden, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? Now, some people actually believe in that and say, well, this proves that God's not omnipresent. He doesn't, no, he's, he's doing the dad thing. You ever done that? Yeah. Your kid's in trouble, what are they doing? They're hiding from you. You know they're in the closet, you can see their foot sticking out. What do you say? Are you in here? <laughs> it's the same thing, right? Where are you? And so Adam answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid uh, because I was naked, so I hid. And he, God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Right? Your kid ate the cookie. You can see it all over his face, but you see there's crumbs all over. There's chocolate chips mashed into his lip. What do you still ask him? You know what's going on. 
Did you eat the chocolate chip? What do they say? No. <laughs> so God knows what's going on. He's trying to confront him. He's trying to get him to own up to it. Be responsible for your action. You blew it. Right? And so he says, so the man says, the woman, you, you oh, oh, what'd he say? Oh, oh, wait, wait a second. Uh, you're right, God. I blew it. I got chocolate chips all over my lips. And I'm hiding in the closet. Right? No. The, the woman, the woman you put here with me, uh, she gave some fruit of the tree and I ate. Well, then the Lord God, he said to the woman, now what's this you've done? And the woman said, uh, uh, I accept personal responsibility for what I did. And no, she did the same thing too. It was that snake. It was the serpent right there. He deceived me and I ate. Now, what's interesting, you got, you got the very first thing out of Adam and Eve's mouth right after sin introduced into the world. What was the next thing? What was the first thing out of their mouth? Blame. Right? Blame. Not, not words of responsibility. How different, I don't know, would it have been if they would have said, yeah, God, we blew it. I'm so sorry. God, would you please forgive me? You gave us paradise. How can I? Oh. But oh no, the first thing they did was blame. It wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me. It was that snake. No, no. They, listen, what, what is that? They complained to God. Oh no, it's not my fault. And believe it or not, because of that entrance into the world, sin, which this came with it, okay, it spread ever since then. In fact, I hear it even went to Noah. Listen to what happened to Noah. One day the Lord spoke to Noah and said, Noah, in six months I'm going to make it rain on the whole world, and it's going to be covered with water, and all the evil things are going to be destroyed. But I want to save a few good people, uh, two of every living uh, kind on the planet, and so I'm ordering you to build an ark. So Noah, he's trembling with fear. He's got the plans there and stuff, and he says, okay, God, I'm your man. Well, six months later, uh, the Lord looked down and he saw that Noah was sitting in his yard weeping and there's still no ark. So, so God shouted to Noah, Noah, where's my ark? And Noah started complaining. He said, Lord, please forgive me. Please come on, God. I said, I did my best, but I ran into some problems. He said, first I had to get this building permit for the ark's construction, but your plans didn't meet their code. And so I, I had to hire this engineer to redo the plans only to get into a long argument with him about whether or not to include a fire sprinkler system. And then my neighbors objected, claiming I was violating zoning ordinances by building the ark in my front yard. So I had to get a variance from the city planning board. Then I had a big problem getting enough wood for the ark because there was this ban on cutting trees save the spotted owl. So I tried to convince the environmentalists in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service I needed the wood to save the owls, but they wouldn't let me catch them, so no owls. And, and then the next I started gathering up the animals, but I got sued by the animal rights group that objected me only taking two of each kind. And then just when the suit got dismissed, the EPA noticed, find me that I, I couldn't complete the ark without filing an environmental impact statement on your proposed flood. So the Corps of Engineers wanted a map of the proposed flood, so I sent them a globe. They didn't think it was funny. So right now, God, I'm trying to resolve a complaint with the Equal Opportunities Commission over how many minorities I'm supposed to hire. The IRS has seized all my assets, claiming that I'm trying to leave the country. In fact, I just noticed that from the, the state, I owe some kind of use tax. And really, God, I don't think I could finish the ark in less than five years. Well, with that, the sky cleared and the sun began to shine and a rainbow arched across the sky. And Noah looked up and smiled at me. God, you're, you're not going to destroy the world? And God says, nope, the government already has. <laughs> now does that sound familiar or what we just tried to get a gas pipe done but i'm not complaining about it <laughs> can you believe that and folks I'm, what i'm talking about is not just familiar about hello the harmful effects of government i think that's pretty obvious okay but it, it's this tendency just like adam and eve just like uh, apparently Noah and this joke or something but but ever since then this is what we do right when self is confronted you blew it what do we do? What's the first thing? Oh, no. That snake you gave me. That snake, that woman. That th it was that. No, it was that. Yeah. Now, here's, here's the point, and I bring that up. I think I know why. Because if you stop and think about what happened here in the fall of man, before it was paradise, it was awesome. God, they were walking apparently in intimacy with him in the cool of the day, right? It was just awesome. Intimacy with God, it's just amazing. And then if you notice the words coming out of Eve's mouth, what was it? pleasing to the eye, and food for me. And yeah, for the first time, Adam and Eve developed an eye problem. It used to be all about God in the garden, worshiping God, being thankful and grateful, a worshiper of God. And now what came with that sin nature was self. Me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. It's all about self. And since self comes first, if you attack self, oh no, preserve it with blame. Because that's really who you're worshiping when you do that. 
We say we're worshipers of God, but if you, blame, if you don't take responsibility, you're, bl- you're turning others into an object of blame, and you're not worshiping God. Now, listen, God's omnipresent, right? Just like we saw there, he, he, he can see your foot in the closet. He can see the chocolate chips. He's omnipresent, right? So when we do this, I want to give you an analogy. When we do this, when we worship self above God, even as a Christian, and we know we're doing that when we blame, because that's what we're doing. Can you imagine what this self-worship must sound like in the ears of God? Well, I think it might sound a little bit something like this. Let's take a look at these new Christian tunes of self-worship. Let's take a look. It's all about me. It is all about you. Now, the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about now I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you because you are unique and you love you there is none like me no one else all this can for do only 1995 like operators do. are standing by to serve you and i am why i sing and i am why i live if you order now you'll also receive a second cd of yule tide favorites Call 1-800-ME-ME-ME or order online at me-myself-and-I.com Call today because no one can praise you like you. <laughs> By the way, that's uh, Ken's brother Earl. And that's why we didn't hire him. Okay, we got Ken and Steph, but seriously. <laughs> now, folks, think about that, okay? I know it's kind of funny, whatever, but God sees everything, okay? When we do this self-worship, it's all about self, and you go, well, I'm not, I'm not you know, worshiping myself. You know, I'm a worshiper of God. When you whine, when you complain, when you blame other people to protect self, that's the tune he really hears. It's a sign that you're not worshiping God with your mouth. You're worshiping yourself. Now, the second unfortunate aspect is not just now you're worshiping self instead of God with your mouth, but this kind of a life, always blaming other people, it locks you into a life of sin. It, and let me explain what it does, because here's, here's the little game that we're playing. It's just like Adam and Eve, right? Again, I wonder what would have happened if they said, you know what, God, you're right, I blew it. I, I accept responsibility, for, I blew it. Would you please forgive me? And then if Adam were and Eve both would do, what, what would have happened? I don't know. But it's the same thing, and we, we do the same thing, to avoid guilt, to protect self, because that's who we worship now, okay? We blame others, but again, God sees it all. So listen, when you live like that, listen, you're actually tricked into not having to deal with your sinful behavior. God sees it all. He wants you to deal with it. He wants you to accept responsibility for it. He wants you to own up to it so that, hey, guess what? You can get right with God, and that's a good thing, and move on, and get rid of that sin. But if you're always doing this, no, no, it's them, it's that, it's this, it's do you ever get around to confessing it? Do you ever get around to repenting of it? Do you get, ever get around to dealing with it? No. And so guess what? When you blame, it locks you into a life of sin. And then we wonder why we don't experience victory in our work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you some examples. How, how do you know when a person is locked into a life of sin? They are not going to experience victory that we can have through Jesus Christ as he sets us free from sin. Well, let me break it down for you. Maybe it's like your job, Right? Maybe it's your job, and you say something like this. Well, listen, I'll tell you what, it's my employer's fault. They don't realize how good of an employee they've got. Everybody else gets a raise except for me. I work harder than all them put together. Maybe it's your marriage. You say something like that. It's my spouse's fault. Them, right? They used to be loving, but now they only think of themselves. They don't meet my needs. How can anybody expect me to put up with their behavior? Maybe it's your kids. Oh, it's never us, right? Even though kids mimic us. Right? Oh, those kids, they never mind me. I get no respect. I could yell them till I'm blue in the face. They never listen to me. Rah, 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 rah. Sound familiar? Blaming others for our responsibility is a subtle way to avoid responsibility, which means you're not going to deal with it, which means you're not going to be free from it. 
All because we're worshiping self. Do you see the trap? That's what it does. It locks us into a life of sin. So how do you flip it around? How do you know that somebody is being set free? How do you know that they're really worshiping God? They're being set free from a life of sin. Well, it goes something like this. Let's go back to those original scenarios. If you don't like your job, because guess what? Hey, welcome to life. This is not heaven. Heaven comes later. There's always going to be challenges wherever you go, right? So if you don't like your job, you don't whine, you don't complain, you don't blame other people. Just say, hey, hey, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that I even have a job. Lord, remind me that I work for you, not for man. And God, help me to remember every single day, this isn't just about a paycheck. This is a mission field from you. Maybe you don't like your marriage. Maybe you're having hard times. And here's what you say. Jesus, thank you for my spouse. I praise you, God, for my spouse. I recommit myself to the vows of promise that I made before you and man and my spouse. And God, before you change my spouse's heart, would you please change mine? One more. Go back to your kids. Maybe you're having trouble with your kids. You simply declare this. Jesus, I praise you for all my kids. One or a hundred. Okay, maybe not a hundred. That chuckle confirmed it. <laughs> Eat is enough. <laughs> I praise you for all my kids because your word tells me they're all a gift from you. And blessed is the man whose quiver uh, is full of them. Kids are awesome. Thank you, thank you, God, for this gift. And God, I take responsibility for their behavior. I take responsibility for the behavior. And God, please help me raise them according to your standards. And would you please repair the damage that I may have done? Do you see the difference? One, no, no, it's that, locks you into a life of sin. You never get set free because you never deal with it. That's the game. But if you just own up to it, wherever it is, job, marriage, kids, family, doesn't matter. You're free. You're free. And it shows you're free. Oh, and by the way, you're not worshiping yourself. You're back to being thankful and grateful for your job, your marriage, your kids, as God's setting you free. And guess what? You just got your great witness back. Right? Turns others into an object of blame, locks you into a life of sin. The second thing that complaining affects others is it leads others to do the same. Again, it's kind of like that chicken juice thing. This is bad. It's bad enough that it could destroy you if you let it, but man, unfortunately, it doesn't stay with you. Now, this is uh, 2 Timothy. This is the J.B. Phillips translation from the Greek. This is awesome. Listen to how he breaks this passage down. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. But steer clear of these unchristian babblings, blah, 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 right? Which in practice lead further and further away from what? Christian living, right? Don't, that's a bad influence, right? For their teachings are as dangerous as blood poisoning to the body, listen to this, and spread like sepsis from a wound. Woo! Now see, for those of you who don't understand the woo behind my woo, <laughs> sepsis is a formation of pus. Ooh, right? That's coming out, of, that's what he's saying, this stuff coming out of their mouth, that's like, like, that's like pus mouth. <laughs> That's what he's saying, okay? Now, the context of what's going on here is he's warning the church, don't give an ear, don't listen to false teaching coming out of people's mouths. And he says that because it is dangerous. It'll spread. It's like a horrible infection, man. You got the infection, now it's spread to them. They got the infection too. And he says they're the words, they're unchristian babblings. It literally means vain and useless talk, worldly empty chatter. And this is exactly, I'm convinced, what complaining is. Vain and useless talk. Worldly empty chatter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Blah, 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 blah. That's what he's saying right there. And even if you don't think it fits the context, I does, because think about what a person is doing. The context is false teaching. But think about what we're doing when we're whining and complaining as a Christian. Non-Christians don't know better. We know better. But when we whine and complain, what are we doing? We're spewing forth the false teaching as if God doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to take care of us. So, isn't that spreading a false teaching with your mouth? So I think it certainly fits the text as well. But listen, listen to what it says. It says it's not just bad enough that that's what you're doing. He said it's like sepsis from a wound. This is bleh. 
Now see, sepsis from a womb, you guys may not be getting this one. So that's right, it's time once again. I shared it before a while back, but I need to share it again. Because repetition increases remembrance. This is Wiener Dog lesson number 421. You guys ready? Here it comes. This is cool. Hey, get a wiener dog and get spiritual. That's my slogan, okay? Because they teach us so much. And this is actually happened when I was back in New York. Okay, pastoring back there. It's just one of those days you didn't know God was going to teach you a powerful lesson, but here it came, right? And I came home, I think it was after a Sunday, and Brandy and Rebecca and Billy had already uh, gotten home. They were in the back deck, and it was one of those strange days in New York when the weather was really nice, okay? And the sun was shining, this yellow orb in the sky. You know what I'm talking about. And so we were out there in the back deck appreciating it, right? And Billy, I think he was only about three at the time, whatever, little, little guy. And, uh, but, uh, and so here comes my, my two dogs, Sammy and Susie, the wiener dogs, right? And just coming from the backyard, you can see their ears flapping. It was, it was, it was a moment. And we said, so that's what they, because they want to spend time with pops, right, with me. So I, I get there, so that's the scene, right, they're on the back patio, and here comes Sammy, right, and so I could tell Sammy, all of a sudden, I noticed he had a, a dead carcass in his mouth. I mean, he was proud of it, too. He was like, <laughs> well, actually, he was down here, but anyway, but a little wiener dog, and he was proud of it, man, and, and he came right up to me, because he was showing pops the big kill, right, and, and anyway, I looked closer, I noticed it was a mouse. Now, listen, you got to put it in perspective. A mouse, wiener dog, it's a pretty big kill. Because I know you're thinking about that, okay? All right? and, and that's when I noticed that Sammy brings this mouse up to me. And listen, that thing wasn't just dead. It was decomposed. Okay, it was flat and crispy. In fact, it had been dead for quite some time. It was super crunchy. And then it dawned on me, man, he didn't kill it. He found it. Right? But I wasn't going to ruin his day. Those guys got to stick together, right, Jim? So I still encouraged him for taking down that big lion, whatever that was. And so this is taken back uh, on the deal and uh, uh, on the back deck there. And, and so then when Brandy and Rebecca and Billy, they saw the crispy critter in Sammy's mouth, of course, they're doing that, get it out, girl, so, uh, you know, get it out of his mouth. So I did the manly thing, and I'm going down to Sammy, grab the thing, and he didn't want to let it go, his big kill, right? And, but eventually he did, and that's when I noticed it wasn't just crispy, it was moving. There were maggots all over that thing. Yeah, now you're starting to get it. And now there were maggots in that thing inside his mouth. Now you're really getting it. And then Billy, I kid you not, he was over there, and he saw the maggots fall on the, on the deck there, right? And they started squirming, and he goes, ooh, Papa, look, wormies. I'm going to back off. Those aren't worms, right? So anyway, and so that's right. Then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. Wait a second. My first son, Sammy, who my wife still resists this truth. My wiener dog, Sammy. I had him before we had children. My son, Sammy. Oh, he's got maggots in his mouth. Oh, right? And it was verified because he was starting to go like this. Trying to get him out of his mouth, right? And do nothing. And so I thought, you know, so I did, I did what any red-blooded American pet owner would do. And I turned to Sammy and said, you're on your own. I'm not touching those things, man. I hope the nature shows are right when those are a good source of protein or something. But here's the whole point. Can you imagine? Can you imagine biting into something? only to find that now maggots are coming out of your mouth. Now, obviously, that happens with chicken, but just in general, <laughs> maggots. Now, I said all that. Now you get that much better than pus mouth. Meh. That's what the Bible says we're doing when what comes out of our mouth is just whining and complaining and vain, useless, bleh, bleh, bleh. Every word becomes a, Megan. Let's close in prayer. No. <laughs> now, here's what's bad enough. That's pretty gross. Now, I'm, I'm just working with the Greek here. That's what the text says. That's how bad. That's how graphic that Paul wanted these guys. Do you, do you understand what's going on here? You understand how serious this is? This is gross. Christian, no. But he says, listen. It doesn't just now produce, if you will, maggots and pus coming out of your mouth. That's bad. He says, if, what, what's that? It spreads. So you went ahead and kissed that person with maggots come out of their mouth. What's going to come out of yours? Oh, this is just getting bad. <sighs> but that's what he's saying. It spreads like sepsis from a wound. It spreads. Now everybody's got maggots coming out of their mouth. How many of you guys would say that's kind of a little bit of a deterrent? When you go to a church service, you're new, right? You go there, and the first thing you know, somebody comes up to you, hi, <laughs> welcome to sunrise. <laughs> Whether it's here, out there, hey, I'm a Christian. Don't you want to come to church with me? No. 
That's what he's saying is heaven. And let's be honest, folks. How many guys have noticed that that is so true? Have you ever worked with somebody that complained all the time? I mean, just everything. It, I don't, it wasn't just, man, that's bad enough. You're all shriveled up and messed up. But if you weren't careful, if you weren't on your guard, what happened to you? It spread. Next thing you know, you were having a great day. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you started doing it too. It spreads like a deadly infection. In fact, the Bible warns us about this infectious behavior. It is such a hard thing to be around somebody who's a constant complainer. Let's take a look at a couple passages here from Proverbs. Proverbs 21, 9 says this, better to live, listen, on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And that was nervous laughter. Let's move on. Proverbs 19, 13, a foolish son is his father's ruin and a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. Yes, those are in the Bible. And for those of you men, I know you're out there, you're probably saying, you know, Pastor Billy, I've never in my life, ever once, ever, memorized not even one Bible verse in my life. But for some reason, the Spirit of God is all over me, and I need to start with those two. No, 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 no. I know you're out there. I know you're out there. The verses apply to men or women, okay? But to give you an idea, what the Bible says, this is such a strange Christian, don't go there trying to be around somebody that's Let me see if we can visualize why the Bible says this is like a constant drip. Just, oh, wears on you, right? Like this, let's take a look. to work today. I mean, everything has gone wrong for me. First, there's a lady next to me talking on the phone. Then there's a guy behind me shaving. Can you imagine? That's all he was doing, shaving the whole next way to door work. Next door and help the lady. Remember, she has to go. Oh, you're going to love this. And then this that lady overnight. calls me on my cell phone. Your mom. She can't wait to come over for dinner. And, and you know what? She's like a new person at the church. Turn off that television. Kids get up on the couch and do something. And then, guess what? You read the newspaper? Depressing. Get up on the couch and do something. It's a little depressing. I can't do that. Walk your dog. Do something. Man, you know you hit a nerve when you got clapping and ain't even done yet. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, folks, let's be honest. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you guys thought, man, when you saw that guy pull the wrench out of the drawer, he was going to do something else with it? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Why? Because it's true. We laugh about it, but it's true. Being around somebody just constantly, just like the scripture says, a constant drip. And wow. Although in my house, we don't call it nagging. We say, I'm being a helpful reminder. <laughs> and Brandy and I, we don't even argue. We just have intense moments of fellowship. Okay. But whatever, you call it what it is, folks. Constant complaining is a constant draining. The problem is you need to shut it off. Because it'll not only destroy you, next thing you know, the next person next to you, they start doing it. Then they start doing it, then they start doing it. Then they start, next thing you know, the whole room, the whole church. <laughs> and believe it or not, the Bible does provide a wrench to stop the drip. 
And it's this one right here, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 29. Christian, do not let how much? Any, none, zada, zip, nothing. No unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. What's the only thing that should be coming out of your mouth, Christian? That only which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The Bible says we need to spend with our mouth time uh, not tearing each other down, but building each other up. We need, listen, noise edification, not noise pollution. And just like last week we saw flick the lip, you start catching yourself whining, flick the lip. This one, shut it off. Take the wrench, Ephesians 4.29, shut it off. Because it not only will affect you, if you don't shut it off, just like a leaky pipe, eventually it starts to spread. Just like the Bible says, listen, it's like something horrible come out of your mouth. It's like pus, it's like maggots, and it will spread. And you thought it was bad just with you? Wait till you get a whole household like that, a whole workplace like that a whole church like that in fact believe it or not i found somebody who unfortunately didn't apply the wrench his name was ken as you can see here now as you saw last week if you guys were here on the journey of ken in las vegas that uh, he ever since he got here he got a big old swelled head but he started getting this uh, negative attitude and of course as you were here last week i confronted him on it and what do you do he got all bug-eyed with me he said oh yeah okay festival. but i told him john says listen you better shut this off because listen next thing you know you're gonna have some horrible stuff come out of your mouth oh yeah no i won't no i won't yes you will as you can see here next thing you know it messed him up totally right well see the problem is just like the bible says listen if you don't shut it off it's bad enough you got something horrible come out of your mouth now it's going to spread to others and sure enough look what happened to jess it started going to her and then we all know hello again they're here jess they're helping with the nursery. I don't know if you've gone in there lately, but look at the kids. They're getting all messed up, right? They're spreading to them. And if you ever go to their house and see their uh, three dogs, Earl, Buford, and Larry, look at them. They're all messed up too. I mean, they're infecting them. And then he got the wise idea. Oh, hey, let's go visit Pastor Billy. Look what he did to my dog. That ain't funny, Ken. You're going to fix his teeth. <laughs> but seriously, folks, I did about three different analogies. Some funny, some not funny. But when we complain, it doesn't just affect us, dries up, shrivel up the bones, but it spreads. And let's be honest, who wants to go to be a church, go to a church like that, that everybody's got pus or maggots coming out of their mouth? That's what the Bible says. So let's get back to worshiping Jesus. Now, in closing, I got the question is this, well, what do we do? What if, we, what if we're one of those people? What if we got uh, sucked into all this and we're actually doing this? That we're whining, complaining all the time as a Christian. Well, number one, I think you need to right now today, don't do what Adam and Eve did and blame it. Accept responsibility. You need to repent. And say, God, would you please forgive me for worshiping myself? I take responsibility for what I've been doing, the words coming out of my mouth. Number one, you need to repent. You need to get right with God. Number two, what I've learned, you need an attitude adjustment. And I really think that one of the main reasons why people, even Christians, become these constant complainers is because your attitude. It's your attitude. And that attitude is the classic uh, uh, polemony between a pessimist and an optimist. Right? And as long as God's on the throne and he's always on the throne, there's always optimism. But a pessimist is that person that's always negative. No matter what's going on, it's always negative. Like this guy. Listen to this. There's this man who was placed in a monastery, and he's given the opportunity to say only two words every five years. And so after the first five passed, he was called in to allow to say his two words. And here's what he said. He said, food bad. <laughs> well, five years goes by, so he gets two more words, right? So he comes in and says, well, all right, what are you going to say? And he says, bed hard. So a total of 15 years, right? Five more years later, he comes in and he simply says this, I quit. <laughs> to which the bishops responded, we're not surprised. You've been complaining ever since you got here, <laughs> Right? And it isn't just guys. Ladies can get this negative, pessimistic attitude. Nothing's good enough. Blah, blah, blah. Like this lady. There was this lady, and she was an incurable grumbler. The whole town, everybody knew it, right? Small town. Complained about everything. But at last, her preacher thought that he had found something in which she should be happy. Because her farm crop was the finest for miles around. And so he met her, and he had this big beaming smile. And he says, hey, you must be very pleased, Mary, this year. Because everyone's saying how healthy your potatoes look this year. But in her usual sour manner, she says, yeah, that's true. They're pretty good. But what am I going to do when I need bad ones to feed to the pigs? You ever met somebody like that? Always pessimistic. Now, an optimist is obviously the polar opposite, okay? And they just got a great attitude. No matter what goes on, they always think on the brighter side. Like this guy, there was this uh, grumpy diner, and he was furious, 
He was furious with the waiter that his steak had arrived too rare. And so he barks back at the waiter and he says, waiter, didn't you hear me say well done? And the waiter replied, well, I can't thank you enough, sir. I hardly ever get a compliment. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Okay. That's being optimistic, right? In the situation, right? I always have a knack of looking on the positive side. Uh, uh, Optimist. Uh, The classic example is the 90-year-old couple who bought some real estate and took out a 30-year loan. That's being optimist. Or the lady who actually puts her shoes back on when the preacher says, and now in conclusion, yeah, right. He's getting in his third point. How many times learned that one? Keep your shoes off. But uh, anyway, but it boils down to this, folks. It's all in your attitude. I shared this a couple months back on Wednesday night, and I think we all need to hear this now. Two boys, two totally different attitudes, two totally different outlooks on life. The first one was habitually negative. No matter what it was, he would always see the bad in it. But the second boy, he was just the opposite. He had this amazing knack of always finding the good in everything. So awestruck by these two differences, some psychologists decided to test and see if they could get these two boys to change their dispositions. So they took the first boy, the negative boy, to Toys R Us, right? After hours, and they told him he could have the whole store to himself. Then they announced he could have any toy in the whole store and as many toys as he wanted, but he just sat there on the floor. So thinking that he didn't hear them clearly, the psychologist repeated the instructions, but he, he just remained there still. He didn't move. So one psychologist goes up to him and decides to help him out, and he points to a pair of skates and says, hey, would you like to have these skates? And the boy says, are you crazy? Are you nuts? Don't you know I could fall and break my leg? Well, then another psychiatrist goes over to a bicycle, and he thought, hey, no kid could resist a brand new shiny bike, right? And so, but the negative boy cries out, are you trying to kill me? Don't you know how many people run over by... Cars, riding bikes. So the second boy, the positive one, they take him to a farm. And the experimenters thought for sure they had found something that there's no way he could be positive about this. So they take him to the other side. They take him to a barn on the farm there. And on the other side, they says, hey, we got a great gift for you, just for you. Right? And so as they round the corner, there stands a two-story pile of horse manure. Right? But before they could even say anything, the boy immediately charges into the massive pile of dung and he's slinging manure left and right in this frenzy. He can hardly even see the boy with all the stuff flying, the debris there. And so the psychologists, they're amazed and they, they hurry over to him and say, what are you doing? Don't you know this is horse manure? And the boy's still searching intently. He says, well, of course I know that. And he says, well, what are you looking for? And the boy says, well, I figure with this big a pile of manure, there's gotta be a pony in here somewhere. That's a positive attitude. Because Christian, this is not heaven. Every day we have a choice to make. Maybe some days it feels like you got the right end of the deal. Maybe it feels like somebody just offloaded a pile of manure in your front yard. It's your attitude. It's your attitude that makes the difference. Chuck Swindoll shared again, he says this, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude in life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than the education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, what other people think, say, or do. It's more important than appearance and giftedness or skill. It will make or break a company, a home, a marriage, a family, a business, a church. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change the fact that people are going to act in a certain way. We can't change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one thing we have, and that is our attitude. And he says this, Christian, I'm convinced that life is only 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Can I translate it? You can blame all you want, but nobody makes us whine and complain. It's a choice. And we need to simply get back and have a positive attitude, trusting that God does in fact know what in the world he's doing. Worship him with your mouth, being thankful and grateful, and be that positive witness for Jesus, leading like Dwight Moody, many souls to him. That's a life worth living for. Amen? Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. 
The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. 
Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.